When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. All that winter, I looked in at my life wondering who I was and where I was going. It was 2019. I was a husband, a father, a high school English teacher, 36 years old. Yet beyond that constellation of facts was a black sky I could not fathom. In the past, I turned away from the void of existential questioning by planning trips alone, usually on a bicycle. These escapes from routine distracted me from the empty sky for a while anyway. But that winter felt different. The wondering grew more urgent, the abyss at my center more occupying. And so, when it came time to plan my escape, I went big. I bought a ticket to Alaska. I explained the trip to Joan, my wife of a decade, and Forrest, our seven-year-old son, like this. In June, I would fly from Richmond, Virginia, to Juneau, catch a ferry to the city of Skagway. From there, I would bicycle north into the Yukon before circling back into Alaska, ten days away, all told. It would do me good. And they supported me, as they always had. First Joan, and then Forrest, who said, I just hope your bike doesn't break down. I hope so too, but in the end, it wasn't the bike that failed me. A month later, in early spring, a knee injury put me out. Had the Alaska ticket been refundable, I might have limped away. But it wasn't. My upper body remained healthy. Paddling came to mind. I had never touched a sea kayak, but Juneau was on the coast, accessible only by plane or boat. I studied nautical maps of southeast Alaska, considering out-and-back routes near Juneau that avoided exposed open water. South of the capital, in an area adjacent to the deep but relatively calm waters of the Gastineau Channel, I discovered a mountain ring basin, 18 miles long and 2 to 5 miles wide. At its head, the deepest glacier of the world's temperate regions. This place had a name, Taku Inlet. 
but web search has revealed little about it except for its steep shorelines and exposure to strong winds. Despite these elements of hostility, something about the place felt sacred to me. Maybe it was the high, rocky coast or the altar-like glacier. The more I studied that map, the more I envisioned the inlet as a cathedral of the natural world. I had to see it for myself. I did not consider myself a religious person. When it came to God, I had never been much of a believer, but I believed in inner journeys, in pilgrimage. As an English teacher, I taught such concepts regularly. Maybe it was time for me to take a journey for myself, because maybe escape wasn't what I needed after all. Maybe instead of evading the unanswerable questions, I needed to confront them. And now I had happened upon this place where even the geographical definition felt like an invitation to deep insight. An inlet, after all, was not merely a bay or recess in the shore. It was a point of access, even discovery. Inlet, my dictionary read, a way of entering. When I told Joan and Forrest about my change of plans, they were dismayed. A bicycle was one thing, Joan pointed out, but a kayak? What did I know about the sea? To answer her concerns, I studied surf and tides, weather prediction, and nautical navigation. I bought a VHF radio and a wetsuit. I bought dry bags and a life jacket. And I found a teacher, a sea kayaker in northern Virginia, to guide me through wet exits and re-entries. Still, Forrest was scared. Wasn't Alaskan water very cold? He asked me. Wasn't it very deep? I understood his concerns. I would be alone in a wild environment. All the gear in the world couldn't account for that. But I was committed now. In the second week of June, the day after school ended for the summer, I said goodbye and caught a flight. Forty-eight hours later, I stuffed forty pounds of gear and food into the seventeen-foot sea kayak I had rented and put in Ak Bay. The distance from there to the mouth of Taku Inlet was twenty-five miles, a distance I had hoped to cover in eight or nine hours, but rain and twenty-knot headwinds slowed my progress considerably. I passed through downtown Juneau and was the only boat out. A man at the harbor where I sought temporary shelter called me crazy. Six hours later, I nearly capsized as I landed on a rocky beach where I ended up camping for the night. I was still five miles from the inlet. The next morning, the wind died down and I covered the last stretch of the Gastineau Channel, deep water along a wooded shore. Harbor seals puzzled over me from a distance. Eagles circled overhead. The coast rose steeply to my left, and I knew I was close. When I spotted Bishop Point at the mouth of the inlet, I let out a grateful yell. Entering the inlet, I looked up. The shores were precipitous, piled boulders and mile-high peaks. I had not been wrong, imagining this a cathedral of nature. I was entering into something sacred, not merely a geographical feature, 
but a revealing interior space. As I paddled into the afternoon, my resolve turned to anxiety. Given the steepness of the shores, good campsites were few. The little patches of beach I passed were sure to be swept by high tide, 14 feet or more. Then, mid-afternoon, I came upon a wide cove divided by a narrow creek. I dragged my kayak over mud flats and kelp-covered rocks. I perched my tent and boat on the highest and flattest rock I could find. The back of my camp butted against a thickly foliaged cliffside. Yet for all my efforts, I still feared the sea. Green algae lines plastered the rocks just inches from my tent. And who was to say the tide would not go higher tonight? Afraid to sleep, I spent hours in wait, eyeing the rising water. I calculated and recalculated its progress based on my tidal charts. Even so, I felt helpless. When high tide came and went with inches to spare, I almost cried with relief. The next morning, I made progress despite the spitting rain and my sore and blistered hands. For weeks, I had pictured the deep tidewater glacier at the head of the inlet. Now, rounding the final promontory, I finally made out the commanding width of gray ice, seemingly close even four miles away. For a while, I let myself drift in the face of the wind. I thought about turning back so that I could escape the inlet by evening, but I did not go. I had come to this place to see myself more clearly. Escape was beside the point. I searched for a campsite on the steep granite shore. The boat delivered to high ground. I set about making camp. For most of that afternoon, the old questions ran through me. Who was I? Why was I here? Where was I going? But no answers arose. Even worse, the questions themselves felt like hollow cliches. I felt foolish, like an actor overplaying a part. Eventually, I thought of my street in Virginia, my split-level house surrounded by towering trees. I thought of Joan and Forrest. I loved them, but I knew this already. So what was it then? What did I need to see? I am not a superstitious person. I generally don't take stock in dreams. Yet here I am telling you about the dream I had that night. My mother and father were driving me somewhere. A journey of multiple destinations. Anonymous yet mysteriously connected places. The view from the window was darkness, yet with every stop I felt increasingly emotional. I began to weep. I heard myself say, this is my life's journey. My parents said nothing. Then my mother disappeared, and only my father remained. But it was not my father now. In his place, an indistinct yet absolute force I recognized only as God drove me on through the darkness, never looking back. I felt helpless to discover its true identity or purpose. I was certain I would never see its face. And then I awoke.
I checked my watch, 12.41, yet it wasn't dark. I unzipped my tent and climbed out. For the first time since I had arrived in Alaska, the sky was absolutely clear. In the north, the sun glowed beneath the horizon. The moon, almost full, hung high in the southern sky. In their light combined, I considered the peaks and ridgelines of the opposite shore. And then something else caught my eye. The sea itself, drawing toward high tide and triangulation with the heavens. The moon and the sun pulling on those waters as indifferently as my creator had guided me in my vision. In my dream, I had felt powerless. I had felt small. And I felt the same things now, witnessing nature from that ledge. Yet here, I was grateful. Only from this small perspective could I marvel at what was vast. There I stood at the center of something infinite. This dream of a place I had found a way of entering. That was a year and seven months ago. Every day here in Virginia, I am grateful for that night. Falling asleep with Joan beside me and Forrest but a wall away, I recall the inlet, the moon and the sun, the tide drawn up between them. What else do I see? I'm not always sure. Sometimes it is an image, a man confronting impersonal forces he can only begin to fathom. But sometimes it is something else. It is contact. It is the god of my dream unveiling itself through light and gravity. Here I am, it seems to say. Maybe this much you can understand. And maybe I do understand. I understand that we are small, that nature is large. I understand that we exist as specks in a flow of every other being and thing. I understand fate as a form of gravity. Sometimes I think past that night on the ledge to the morning after, how I climbed out of my tent and came down to the low-tide mud flat, where tiny icebergs awaited me. As I knelt and laid my hands on one, I heard a sputtering. I looked up. Just yards away in shallow water, a gray harbor porpoise had surfaced for air. I stood and watched as it flopped and dove and resurfaced. For the longest moment, I felt it there, as it surely felt me. But I wanted more. I raised my hand. I called out, Hey! It paused, watched me for a second, then dove again and was gone. Will Dunlap, and this is my short. Thank you, Will, for sharing your story. Our stories, they come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please just give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Cloud9, Kai Engel, John Barry, and Brendan O'Connell. 
The tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves or from Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and Becca Cahal. Artwork by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.